Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of My Angular Story. This week, we're talking to Travis Tidwell. Travis, do you want to say hi? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks Glad for coming. To be here. Of course. Now, we had you on episode 125. Man, that was two years ago? That was a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot's changed. Yeah, well, a lot's changed, uh, not only for Angular, but also just, just in the web in general. It's almost like you can't even go six months without everything changing dramatically, right? I know, right? <sighs> yeah. The, the nice thing, though, as far as any of those changes go, at least in my opinion, is that we seem to be tackling different problems every time, right? So it's not, oh, here's a new batch of frameworks, let's all switch again. It's, okay, now we've kind of got the, we've settled on a few frameworks out there in the yeah. community, let's go tackle state management or you yeah. know, build systems or, you know, whatever. So, yeah. Yeah, another, another thing I've noticed is they all kind of seem to be stabilizing on the same design patterns too, which I find really refreshing. I remember in the good old days whenever progressive web applications was just becoming a thing, everyone had their own way of doing it. And, and uh, it was really kind of difficult to find which one was the best one. But it really does seem like they're all kind of converging on the same development patterns, which is always a, a refreshing thing to see. Yeah, that makes it easier to pick them up and you move between them and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, do you want to give us a brief introduction? I know you're CTO at form.io. I don't think that's changed since we talked to you a couple of years ago. But yeah, what, what, who are you? What are you up to? Yeah, so uh, thanks for that. Yeah, so I'm still at I'm still doing form.io. Uh, we started the company about 4 years ago. I'm pretty sure I'll get into kind of the origins of form.io later in this discussion but I'm the co-founder and uh, CTO of Form.io, really the, the founding of this company. And of course, we can talk more further on this, uh, really came about my evolution and actually origins of Angular. I mean, you could almost say that my Angular story is my story of creating a company, a technology company, really surrounding the principles that Angular was all about. And uh, so that's, that's always a very interesting thing to kind of see how that's evolved over the years. But yeah, Travis Tidwell, and uh, I'm currently CTO of Form.io. Cool. Well, I, I kind of want to, before we get into Form.io and your story for Angular, how did you get into programming? Yeah, so what's funny is, is I actually think everyone my age, so I'm, I'm going to be about 40 years old in May. Ooh. And what's really funny now, <laughs> yeah, I'm getting up there. But what's funny is, is everybody that I've talked to that's my age, that's a computer programmer, I believe we all have the same story. And it's, it's almost kind of, it's really funny because almost every single one of us has this story of, having that really old computer when we were like, what, eight years old? And, mm -hmm. you know, your parents bring home this really, you know, this, this IBM or in some people it was the uh, Commodore 64. But really, that was my story. My parents, very early on, they got an IBM computer. In fact, I don't even know what model it was. It was kind of an, along the same time as the Commodore 64. Right. And around that time, there's no video games and there's really nothing interesting that a kid could do with it other than learn to program it. 
And so I would say that that was probably the origins of that. I'm not going to spend too much time on that simply because I think it doesn't really even get interesting until I get into college. <laughs> because, I mean, it's really the same thing as, as for most people. In fact, I was listening to, uh, you, you interviewed, uh, who was it? Rob Eisenberg not too long ago. Mm-hmm. And he kind of explained the same thing. You know, it's like you, you learn DOS, you learn how to program computers. In fact, one of the very first books that I really nerded out on was DOS for Dummies little small tidbit there that I don't think people realize that's the very first dummies book was DOS for dummies. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. So that was my first big, you know, learning all of that whenever I was a kid. It was never really my hobby, though. In fact, I really kind of wanted to be an engineer uh, growing up. And I was really in fact, I got really into physics when I was in high school, not really much into programming at all. I've always known it. So don't don't get me wrong. I've always known Mm -hmm. programming. I've always been good with computers. But it was never the thing for me until really I got into college and it was uh, my senior year of college. I was really into physics. I was really into, in fact, I started getting into electrical engineering and it was a final senior year project. And it was one of those semesters where the classes where the professor shows up on the very first day and he gives you a problem and he says, okay, I'll see you guys in four months. It was one, it was oh, one wow. of those things, you know, it was like, <laughs> there was no class. It was just him showing up on the first day, giving us a problem. And we all had to solve it. Well, the problem was basically that you had to balance a marble on this beam. And of course, most people in electrical engineering at that time would take the analog approach, you know, where the marble would move down a strip and it would change the resistance and that would make a motor move up and down. And uh, for me, I was actually thinking, okay, I think I can actually solve this thing writing software. And so I would say that was probably my first moment when I realized I was I was destined for computer science because Mm -hmm. I was the only one that chose the digital way to do this. And uh, I went out and bought some dot matrix printers and totally went office space on those guys, you know, get the baseball bat out and, you know, PC load letter and smashing them to pieces to basically get these little servo motors. I didn't know if you knew that, that, that uh, old dot matrix printers have these really good yeah. servo motors. And I basically wrote a software program that could program this, this marble to move bounce up and down and, and balance it. I was the only one to get it to work in, in, in my entire class. But I think what that did is that kind of destined me for software. And, and that actually got me my first job out of college, which was um, developing software, embedded software for fish finders. Um, I got a job. Oh, wow. Yeah. For working for Lawrence Electronics, writing uh, C++ C code, very low level, close to the metal language. Mm. And so a lot of people hear that and they're like, okay, how in the world did you ever get into web? Another little interesting tidbit about me is I'm also grown up in performing arts my entire life and was a really good tap dancer of all things. Nice. And it was it was at the same time that I was working for this company building, you know, high advanced embedded software systems. I was, you know, really coming in my own on programming, but I was also giving these these tap lessons to kids, you know, basically teaching them how to tap. Mm-hmm. And around that time, YouTube came out. And so, as most of you know, YouTube at that time was really just for cat videos and people getting hit in the crotch with baseballs. I mean, that, at is that time, this was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, there's a little more to it now than, than, than that, but I, I'm sure some people consume it that way. But, but at that time, I was thinking to myself, you know, it'd be great to be able to teach these tap lessons online. So mm-hmm. I really started learning web, not really with the intent of it becoming my career, I was really just learning it because I wanted to broaden my viewer base on teaching tap lessons. And so I found a CMS at that time called Drupal CMS. Mm -hmm. 
that I thought would do a really good job on effectively creating like a YouTube clone was kind of my original intent. And so I wrote like this video module there for Drupal. And uh, that became pretty popular. And actually, that was my first experience with open source was really just getting into Drupal CMS. I got really into the community. I would say that was probably one of the very first just paradigm shifts of my entire career was, you know, life-changing events was really getting into an open source community. And Drupal's a fantastic community to get involved in. And I would say from there, it kind of took me into to the front end libraries. Of course, as most people know, PHP is kind of like a back-end language mm-hmm. in CMS. And actually, Drupal was actually based entirely on PHP. And I became really good at PHP through my involvement with that. But at the same time, I was also trying to solve problems with multimedia and trying to create a multimedia YouTube interface. And that kind of got me into flash development. So I kind of built my own media player, you know, really using a lot of the the skills that I've been learning from writing embedded software, kind of implying those into web-based technologies. And so got really into Flash. I wrote a book about Flash. And and of course, as everyone knows this, how that ended, Flash dies a, a pretty dramatic death. Pretty much at the same time, whenever uh, the iPhone came out, I'm pretty sure that Steve Jobs was the one that put the nail in that coffin. Yep. And um, so the writing was on the wall at that point for me to learn JavaScript. And so I did. I, I actually built a multimedia player that was basically the, the, the alternate version of this Flash video player that I built called the Dash Player. Built an open source JavaScript version of that called the OSM Media Player. And that really became what I did for a long time, you know, uh, supporting the open source. Of course, I was working for other companies at the time. But really, where my, the interest of, of my path was really in my open source journey. And my open source journey has, has really taken me to contribute a lot of JavaScript, not only libraries, but also a lot of tutorial videos. So I got, on t- got into YouTube and I started teaching people about, you know, building mean applications. I've had some really popular videos out there on, on that. And, and then it kind of got to the point where a, a light bulb went off on a solution that was very much needed in Angular. So in Drupal, it was really good with web forms. So Drupal had this module called the, the web form module. And I, I really got into it with, uh, with one of the companies I was working with. We were building you know, registration systems for sports. And, and we were using this open source form module to create these registration systems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after I left that job, I still had all of that with me, you know, how powerful these form systems can really be. And then the job that I got after that was working for an an API company that was also building a mobile application in Angular. And we needed to introduce forms into that Angular application. And of course, you know, I was kind of going back to my good old days of knowing the web form module saying, man, you know, Angular really just does not allow for these server-rendered systems, these server-rendered UIs. And up to that point, everything was server-rendered, including mm-hmm. all of the form systems out there. Everything was server-rendered. And, yep. and when it comes to Angular applications, there's this really strict decoupling. And of course, everybody knows this. And that strict decoupling also kind of just changed my path. You know, I, At that point in time, I was like, man, there, there really is nothing out there. Of course, there was Formly. Of course, most people know Formly. Formly was a great library that did JSON-powered rendered forms, which I thought was really cool, but it was just strictly front-end. You know, my, in my experience, what the web form module in Drupal really produced was the, this end-to-end solution. It was a form building experience, and then it was also a form rendering experience. And then it was a data management 
solution as well so you can manage your data. And there was just nothing out there equivalent to that in the Angular world. So that's really kind of where the, the light bulb went off for Form.io. And so at that point, it's really just been uh, building Angular uh, integration libraries for JSON-powered forms. But since then, we've actually expanded onto other frameworks as well. You know, we're, we're, not only do we support Angular, but we also support Vue and React and all of that. Mm-hmm. So my Angular story really begins with the creation of Form.io. So... I mean, oh, interesting. A, yeah. Yeah, I just, <laughs> I, I love, first of all, just the, the description of the hustle, right? It's, oh, <laughs> I, I, I saw a need out there and I just, you know, we, we got together and we solved it, you know? Yeah, and the, the side hustle is actually a great, a great thing to talk about because especially in open source and one of the big mm-hmm. struggles with open source, in fact, you know, is, is kind of that side hustle, you know? And at that time I was, you know, working and contracting with, with a lot of different people kind of on the side, Right. But I also had a family at the, at the same moment. And open source is actually really, really somewhat of a struggle. I think it's gotten a little bit better today. But in that time, you know, there, it was really hard to maintain yourself as an open source contributor while at the same time providing for your, your family and, of course, convincing your wife that it'll actually someday be worth it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think everybody can probably relate to this, you know, that that um, open source is somewhat of a challenge because you're not getting paid for it, but you work your butt off. And then, and then people have expectations. You know, all the people who are using your libraries and using your, your stuff, they have this expectation that you're at their beckoning call if anything goes wrong. And, and um, it's really, really difficult. And I think, one, and I've actually struggled with that. And, and I've actually gone, I've had ups and downs. In fact, whenever I, whenever I created that Flash player, Mm-hmm. I would actually say that was a high point because I actually figured out how to monetize it. And because I figured out how to monetize it, primarily because it was Flash and Flash is somewhat closed, yeah. I could make it so that in order to get rid of the logo, you had to pay a license. And so that worked out really right. well. But the second you move over to JavaScript, it's all open. You know, Everybody can see the source code. So you have to kind of get a little bit innovative of it. In fact, mm-hmm. with the JavaScript player, you know, I had I had some really, really high hopes with that becoming this this very popular and open source and then i'd you know i that would be worth a lot of money and what ended up really happening was it became a burnout a mechanism of burnout for me and it it really became hard to maintain it became hard to manage and in that situation really everybody loses so i it's i'm I'm really big on obviously i'm big on open source i contribute to open source all the time but i'm also at the very same time very supportive of people figuring out ways to monetize it so that so that it support is a right. good word, word for it. It can support the people who are providing value to those open source libraries. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you talk about that. And, and the other thing I'm just going to throw out there is, you know, open source. I got burned out in June and it wasn't the, the podcasts on their own. Uh, you know, I do produce them for free. I mean, you know, nobody who's listening to this paid for it, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know... I, I had a bunch of things happen, you know, and, and it made me question a lot of things. And then, yeah, I took a month off in June. Yeah. Go listen to those shows. And my co-hosts carried the shows because I wasn't there. And yeah. it's, anyway, it's, it's just interesting to, to dive into that and, and see what causes it. And sometimes it's, yeah, you're putting in a whole bunch of time and you're not seeing any benefit from it. And sometimes it's something else. Yeah. You know, for, for me, it was my dad passing away. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear uh, that. Know, that. That was in April. Yeah. You know, but you have all of these things and I, I appreciate the, the condolences, but 
you know, you have all these things and, and something changes, something's different, something, you know, you know, right. I, I just can't, I can't take another night of not seeing my kids or. Yeah. And that's, and that was kind of the thing for me. And of course I always, I always understand the motivation. In fact, I, I live through this. So you, you have this original motivation as, as, as an open source contributor and open source developer, you build something really cool. Right. And you're like, okay, yeah. I just want to share this with the world. But what, what a lot of us don't realize is the tail that's associated with that, you know, especially whenever people start using it and they start applying it in other, other situations. Come to realize it worked perfect for your situation, but it doesn't work so perfect for other people's situations. So yeah. you, really get, you really do get tied into it. And, and most of the open source developers that I know are very altruistic people, almost all yeah. of them. They, they legitimately want to do good to everyone. Mm-hmm. And that can sometimes drive them into a pit of despair is that altruistic spirit because what ends up happening is is people take advantage of you and and people who are using your libraries take advantage of the fact that you're that way and it ends up driving you into an unsustainable maintenance system and that's kind of what happened to me and really the kind of the catalyst that kind of that made me think a little bit different about open sources whenever I had a child. You know, I had my, my firstborn son, and of course that was 10 years ago at this point, but that really started to make me think a little bit different about it. One thing that actually I think was supportive for me and actually supportive for my wife, because don't mm-hmm. get me wrong, you know, I, if, if I lived by myself and I was just me and I didn't have a wife and I didn't have kids, I would have no burnout. I'd just do open source all the time. I'd live in my car. I, I wouldn't <laughs> care, right? I have said the same thing. <laughs> so, I, mean, I would. I mean, that's because you know a lot of people are that way as well. But when you when you have a family to provide for, it it, it definitely definitely ch- does change the story. But one thing that I can say that a lot of people I don't think associate value to open source contributions is this concept of a stock price. And this is kind of how I sold it to my wife. She was like, "What are we getting out of this?" And what I said was, "Everybody, including developers, you can almost think of them as like." separate ticker symbols, right? Mm-hmm. And certain things make their stock price go up and certain things make their stock price go down. And open source makes your stock price, especially if you have an, a very popular open source library, yeah. makes your individual stock price skyrocket to where, yes, you're not getting paid to contribute to open source, but a lot of people would have you to be a part of their team and they'd pay a lot to have you as part of your team. And so that kind of created this, this happy medium so that my, you know, that my wife is happy because it actually was true because mm-hmm. most of the jobs that I would go apply for at that point, I just, you know, it got, it got to a point where I no longer even had a resume. I just sent them to my GitHub account profile. I said, that's my resume. Just go take a look at it. And that's all they needed. And so I think that that had a big, big part of it. And, and actually, you know, my, my angular contributions and even form IO, a lot of people don't realize that form IO is rooted on open source. Yeah. Uh, in fact, a, a, a big component of, of Form.io is, is all of our front-end rendering libraries are open source. We have an open source core API platform, but we also figured out other ways to monetize it as well and actually grow a business. And you know, now we employ and pay 13 salaries through this company that is growing, really founded on this open source principle. And, I, and that's what actually what I'm seeing a lot of today is, is people are starting to figure out ways in which people, ways in which they can support it and monetize it. And those are really the projects that you find become successful and the developers do not burn out are the ones that figure out how to do that. Yeah, I've had this conversation with a number of people. A few notably are Henry Zhu, who works on Babel. Oh, yeah. Great library. I use that all the time. That's another. Yeah, everybody does. Oh, yeah. 
you know, he struggled for a little bit trying to figure out because he was working a full-time job and then was working another full-time job to maintain Babel. Yeah. Um, right. And, and he's kind of figured that out at this point. Um, I, I'm just curious. So something like that, I didn't listen to that, per, that particular podcast. There's some open source libraries where I have a hard time conceptualizing how you can wrap that up into a, I guess maybe, maybe for like support packages or something. How does he, he's mostly working it? off of contributions. So it's oh, is that right? like, okay. like that. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, you know, I have some friends in the Ruby community that have built like uh, sidekick is a library over there. And, and mm-hmm. Mike uh, Param, he has a paid version that has other features in it. Right. Okay. Yeah. And open collective is such a wonderful thing to be introduced. I actually think that that, and you know, Patreon, I see that you're on Patreon as well. I, yeah. I feel like that, that it, those are necessary. And I actually urge people, you know, I actually feel like a lot of people, whenever they come to a website and they see that, or they go onto YouTube and they're watching videos and they see that people have these Patreon. Some people actually have this negative emotion when they see that, like, Oh, they're just doing a cash grab here. But what they don't realize is that this takes a lot of work. And it, and it requires that type of support in order to even keep going at all. And yeah. so I think, I think it's very, very important. And it's, it's such a great thing that's, that I feel is becoming a trend for the future. And actually, that's one, that was actually one little thing that kind of drew me away from Drupal is because Drupal had, or at least at the time that I was involved in it, really did almost have this negative emotion about you wanting to monetize on maybe your open source modules. And in the community, they really kind of look toward that as like, okay, that's not in the spirit of open source. And that, that kind of drew me away a little bit because I actually do believe that the spirit of open source is that, mm-hmm. that, that, that really enables the, the, this open source contributions and it, it enables people to take care of their families while at the same time being allocated to these projects full time. And, you know, in that situation, everyone wins. It's, it's very important. Yeah. The, the other person I talk to frequently is Eric from CodeFund. Oh, got it. Yeah. yeah. And he, he, lives, he lives 10 minutes from me. We, we've right. known each other for a long time. But yeah, it's, it's definitely something to be aware of because if these people disappear, yeah, somebody else may step up, but then they're on the train to burn out. <laughs> yeah. And right. then before you know it, everyone's yeah. burned out. Yeah, it's a problem. So I would say, you know, a big part of my Angular story is that is is really open source. It's been my that's been my ride, uh, my road to uh, Formio creating that. But um, also, as of right now, and uh, you might actually be somewhat interested in this because I'm sure a lot of the people that you talk to are, are, you know, they pick a framework and that's their horse that they ride on, and and everything that they do is within that framework. Since we started Formio, we've actually had somewhat of a different problem which was we built this amazing renderer. In fact, the first version of this renderer was built in AngularJS, the first version of Angular. And of course, Angular 2 comes along, right? And then at that mm-hmm. point in time, React becomes really popular. And then Vue.js becomes really right. popular. And then Aurelia. And then there's all these major frameworks that are coming out of nowhere. And we actually had to solve a solution, solve a problem, which is how do we support all of these frameworks while at the same time keeping maintenance to a smaller level. And it's actually a trend that I'm also noticing happening today, which is a lot of libraries are based on core JavaScript, what I like to call vanilla JS cores. Right. And then the frameworks are basically just wrappers around that core. And so that's another, that's another thing that we're actually doing right now in, in a form IO is, we are investing heavily in just just core vanilla JS renderers for just JSON powered forms. 
and then enabling wrappers in all of the frameworks um, around that is another thing that's happening right now. Interesting. So when you started Form.io, you're the CTO and not the CEO, which yep. you usually you know, carry some founder level. So, so how did you wind up building up and forming Form.io? Yeah, so that's a, you know, there was, there was a lot of pain points in that process. I, I would actually say it all started with a prototype. It was, you know, it was, it was really shortly after. So I, w- I worked for this company and we were doing sports registrations uh, using the web form module. That really kind of got me, that let me become aware of the problem of forms and how, mm-hmm. how complex forms can be. I didn't really become aware of the solution until I moved to another company in which they were really building an Angular application on built on top of a REST API. And up until that point, you know, most people, whenever they wanted a form, they would really start what I call from the bottom up. Okay, right. so let's, let's say you want a form in your system. You actually would start with the database guy and you would say, okay, database guy, we want you to create the schemas and everything that's necessary to build this form. Uh-huh. and get, build a database that'll actually take it. And so from there, he will actually throw it over the... And actually, I, I recognized this when I was at this, this other company. He would then send that to the back-end developer, okay? So you have strict front-end developers, back-end developers. The back-end mm-hmm. developer would take that database schema. He would then build an API on top of the database. And then when he was done, he would hand, then hand that to the front-end developer who would build this form. And you have this bottom-up approach. And so what, what I realized was that when you're building a form, and actually it all came from this one simple notion, which is if you were to put a UI on top of an API, it would be a form. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the UI for an API. And so with that one little insight, it came very clear that using a form builder, using it just a very simple drag and drop form builder, you could actually use that as a, an API builder. Right. So I would actually say the origins of Form.io were not necessarily as a form solution. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was labeled, it was named Form.io. We, you know, when I was kind of prototyping, I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I was, uh, there's something here, you know, bringing this concept of the web form module into the Angular world. I knew that that was something special where you have that end-to-end connection. But what made it really special was the form builder component, which the form builder, like most of the libraries at that time were just form renderers. That's what like Formly was. And Mm -hmm. um, I even think there was one called JSON schema or Angular. There was something where you could, where you're basically doing a JSON, um, JSON powered forms, but you would have to write the JSON. When I started experimenting building a form builder whose sole purpose is to just build that JSON schema and then communicate that schema to a REST API, it was that point where it was really where the light bulb went off. And I was like, okay, I think I'm, this, this is something. This, you know, this could be a company. And while it was founded on open source, like the front end renderers and even the core API, I knew that because I was incorporating the API component along with it, that somebody would have to host this somewhere. They'd have to pay somebody to host it. Right. And so I was like, that might as well just be this, this company. And so I, I knew I had a monetization model as well. And so at that point in time, I actually, I knew really well, he was the, a friend of mine, he became a really good friend of mine. And also a lady who became a really good friend of mine as well, worked with me at this registration company. And so it was at, at this time, whenever this light bulb came up, of course, I hadn't seen him in like a couple months, called him up. And I said, I've got this really good idea. And the reason why I liked both of them is, for one, the gentleman who became the CEO, his name is Gary Wetzel. He has a long history of working with big, big companies. And mm-hmm. 
working on the monetization. He's always had the CFO role in a lot of these companies like Travelocity and Graphics Microsystems. I mean, he has oh, a wow. really big yeah. and really, really big resume. I was like, I've got to be able to convince him that this is a big enough idea to basically take a shot. You know, this was a startup. Mm-hmm. And I did. I convinced him. And so he, he, he liked the idea. And then also the lady, Denise Kay, she's our chief business development officer. She's really good with people. I knew, knew that we would need someone to sell the product and, and make relationships. And she was perfect for that. So we basically started. We, we started uh, the company. And of course, at that time, you have no money, right? You have no product. You have no money. And so it, it turns into more of a fundraising experience at that point. And that actually is a struggle. I, I would say one thing that, that I was not anticipating, and it might have just been whenever we were starting it, and also because it was, it was, our product was at that time was a little hard to understand. It was really hard to raise money. And it, it almost didn't, didn't even happen because we were unable to, to fund the, the company. And my, in fact, my CEO had a, a Gary, he had a really funny saying at that time because we, we were out looking for seed investment, right? And so we were, mm-hmm. we were in Texas looking for what we call seed investment. So you'd go to these angel investors and it became very clear that there's no such thing as a seed investment in Texas. It's small bushy plant investment <laughs> is, is really what it is. <laughs> no one's looking for a seed. They're looking for a small bushy plant. So yeah. you know, the fact that we didn't have customers, the fact that we didn't have any revenue, the fact that we just it was just an idea was really almost a no starter for a lot of these people that we yeah. talked to. You know, I think it's different in, in Silicon Valley. I think it's different in other places. But you know, we started in Texas. And at that time, you have, you know, I would say probably more reserved investment community here. I think it's getting better, but I think at that time it was it was it was a painful point. So we ended up at that point just convincing friends and family to take a shot, and um, they're glad they did because we're doing really well right now. We're we're profitable. We're well in the black, and we're growing and hiring, and and great things are happening. Nice. So what are you working on now? So I would say right now, uh, we have a couple of big things happening. Of course, we're, we're working on this, what I call the vanilla, the core renderer is what we call it. And the reason why I call it core renderer is because it really is, it just doesn't care what framework it, it gets latched onto. And mm-hmm. it's just a vanilla JS. We're putting a lot of investment in there. We are spending a lot of time working on a templating engine, a very generic template. It's funny because we're finding ourselves building another framework. And that's kind of what I told my lead architect. I was like, you realize what's happening here. We're, we, we pulled away trying to be just vanilla JS, but we're having to incorporate all of the things that like Angular has and Vue has. And, you know, and of yeah. course, they do it in their own opinionated way. But because we're trying to be unopinionated, we're actually having to re-implement all of these things that these frameworks have. So... Right now, we're trying to build, wrap in a templating engine that's actually based on Lodash templates because we're really into Lodash to allow for Material UI, a lot of the CSS frameworks, so like Material UI, Semantic. Uh, we already support Bootstrap, but we're, we're kind of expanding beyond that region. Right. We're also doing a lot of work in containerization. So like, you know, building containerized systems is actually mm-hmm. a big deal for us right now because... One of the selling points of our platform is to be able to deploy it in any environment connected up to your own database. So we're doing a lot of work in Docker and, and containerizations of our systems. And then, and then, of course, I'll go on site with customers trying to help, help them install. So I've been doing a lot of traveling this year as well, just being on site with some of our you know, bigger customers and getting them all set up and, and ramped up with it. But 
it's been keeping me busy and, and oh, I'm man. still developing, you know, a lot of CTOs, they kind of fall into a more management role, but I would say I've been the majority of my time hacking away. You know, I'm still hacking. I'm still writing software, writing code. I'm still at it. Good deal. Yeah. I wish I could spend more time writing code. I'm actually surprised that I, that I have been, but one of the benefits of the way that we did things, of course, I would actually say that Formio did things a little different than most technology startups. Most technology startups, they go out and they raise a lot of money and then they hire big, big teams and, you know, pedal to the metal. We really took a more pragmatic approach of creating a company. In fact, our, our mission, our biggest mission from day one was to become profitable. Uh, we were like, if we're going to survive, we've got to become profitable as fast as possible. And so what that means is that you have a lot of people on your team that wear a lot of hats. And I, mm-hmm. I really do want to, if, if any of my you know, team is actually listening to this podcast, I just want to give a big shout out to all of them because, you know, all of them are wearing many, many hats. So, you know, myself, I write a lot of code, but I also work with customers. I do sales calls. I do, mm-hmm. I do the whole gambit. I mean, of, of basically we're trying to run a company and trying to get it going. I mean, of course, at this point it's, it, it is going, we're, we're well on our way. The train has definitely left the station. So we're, we're just at this point growing and it's been exciting. Good deal. If people want to find you online, where do they find your stuff? I would say the best place is GitHub. Um, at this point, I've got a lot of open source contributions. A lot of people use my encryption JavaScript library, which does RSA encryption. It's JS Encrypt. That was written by me a long time ago. Um, so that's one of my more popular ones. And of course, on GitHub, we also have the Formio organization. You can find me on there. I spend most of my time in GitHub um, just trying to manage like pull requests, responding to people there. That's kind of my, that's kind of my home online. I also very, very casually spend time on YouTube. I actually have a YouTube channel where I do a lot of training videos. And um, <laughs> I have one of those, I have one of the usernames that was like auto-generated. It's Travis T349. But it's one of those things where you like, you don't realize when you make a decision like 11 years <laughs> yeah. in the past where it says, hey, we would like to recommend this, this name, Travis T349. And at that point, I was like, whatever, you know, I picked it come to realize that's a name that I'm stuck with for the rest of my life. But yeah. um, it's Travis T349 on YouTube. But I've got a lot of um, tutorial videos on there. And it's funny, if you go back far enough, you'll see some of my tap videos that I put up there where I was basically teaching people online tap dancing. But uh, now it's mostly me doing uh, my tutorial videos, walkthrough to videos. I've got a lot of pretty popular building AngularJS with, on the mean stack uh, videos. I'm casually on Twitter. I'm software gnome on Twitter. Um, every now and then you'll, you'll see a, a post from me, but it's very, very rare that, I'm, that I do anything on that. Gotcha. Well, cool. Let's, let's go ahead and do some picks. Do you have some picks for us? Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere available from any device uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, 
FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Yeah, yeah, actually I do. You know, I'm still waiting for the day for somebody else to pick for my own, but, um, you know, when that, hopefully it's one of those <laughs> days that'll come. I'm not going to do that myself, but what I would like to do is pick a technology that we actually work really well with and actually has been just such a godsend, especially for file uploads. Like we do a lot of forms that do file uploads. Mm-hmm. And the way we do file uploads is we upload them to directly to the CDN. So we'll do direct upload to S3 or we'll do a direct upload to Azure blobs. Right. And, but for people that want on-premise file storage that still has the same protocols as those, I found this technology called Minio. I don't know if anybody's picked that yet for you. It's just go to Minio. If you just go to M-I-N-I-O, so it's M-I-N-I-O dot I-O. If you type Minio, you'll see that it's basically private cloud storage that integrates with everything. So you can put it on, you can attach it to S3, you can attach it to Azure, you can attach it to Docker. It's remarkably flexible and it's really good for creating like a file uploads and have those places. And Formio works really well with Minio. We, we have like a pretty tight integration. So I would say that's my pick for technology. I've also got some more fun pick <laughs> and, and the, the fun picks that I have, and I, I'm not sure if anybody has picked this yet, but I really get into to physics and theoretical physics. It, uh-huh. it kind of goes from my high school years and I was a physics major in college, but I really get into nerd like real like theoretical uh, simulation theory, multiple universes, parallel universes. Uh And um, I also have a very sarcastic, dry humor that I appreciate. And I recently binge watched Rick and Morty and have not seen anything so intelligent that just struck home at all of these things that I nerd out about. And it's the funniest animated show I've ever seen in my life. Rick and Morty. I mean, you just got to watch it. You got to just binge watch the... There's three seasons so far. They're saying the fourth season is going to come. They, they don't know when it's going to come, but it's going to come pretty soon. And everyone nerds out about it. But it's, it's very intellectual, extremely funny. And that's definitely a, a fun pick that I have. Nice. I've had a few people recommend it to me. It's just... I, I have to finish watching all of the... In fact, I'll, I'll do a pick here. I have to finish watching uh, the rest of Last Man Standing. So, oh, okay, uh, yeah. And, and I haven't watched that one that. myself. I haven't watched that one myself, but I uh, I've heard good things about it. Yeah, Tim Allen's hilarious. Oh yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll go ahead and pick that, and then I also have another one. I'm um, just kind of talking it because I've been really getting into like artificial intelligence. I really do believe that that's going to be kind of like the next more paradigm shift than than the computer age is going to be AI. Mm-hmm. And so I've been really getting in and watching a lot of videos on AI. And there's a particular movie that I watched that just really rocked my world and was an amazing movie, which is Ex Machina. I don't know if you've had a chance to see I that. I haven't seen it, no. You've got to watch that movie. It's, it's remarkable how well they depict the problems associated with AI. And, and it's really, there's only like three characters in the entire movie. Like there's only three people. Mm-hmm. But the way that they orchestrated it and the way that it was done and the way it was filmed was just really, really good. So I recommend Ex Machina as well. Nice. Yeah, it's 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 a movie I want to see. I just haven't gotten around to seeing it yet. So 
It's a good one. All right. Well, yeah, I, I picked Last Man Standing and I'm trying to think if I have any others. I think I'm just going to leave it there. Okay. Well, Sounds good. Uh, thank you for coming, Travis. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Charles. And um, hopefully some other, you know, some someday in the future, I'll get to do this again. And yeah, absolutely. Fill you in on all the latest, latest things going on. I really appreciate you having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Okay. All right. We will uh, talk to you later and we will talk to everybody else next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.